0: I remember the first time I used Shazam, I thought it was magic.
1: I would sometimes hear a song and I would think, Oh, what's that song? I really like that song. Wouldn't it be great if you could just hold your phone and your phone would figure out what the name of that song was? And thus was born the idea of Shazam. From 2002 to the launch of the App Store on iPhones in 2008, we came nowhere close to having enough users. So we were burning cash. We're near bankruptcy, we had multiple rounds of layoffs, and we were barely surviving as a company. When the App Store launched in 2008, I could see right away that we were a top-ranked app and we stayed there. We'd consistently get 8 million downloads per month. Man. It really stood out at the time as, as like, wow, that's not just an app, that's like a piece of magic. Apple buys Shazam for a reported 400 million, one of
0: the biggest acquisitions for Apple at the time ever. How did that happen? 2755 billionaires in the world and 2024 of them are self-made let's find out how they did it welcome to the unicorn podcast chris welcome to the podcast thank you so much for taking time out perhaps we could start off by you telling the audience a little bit about yourself
1: okay uh let's see um i am from i grew up in san diego california southern california surfing was my sport that i did every day um uh but i came to america or I should say, I was born in America, but my parents came to America from Europe. Uh, my father's British and my mother's French. Um, and uh, so I was born in Chicago. Um, and uh, and then I went off uh, after uh, uh, starting my university years, I went off to live in Northern California near San Francisco. I went to UC Berkeley, which is just across the bridge from San Francisco. Um, and, um, and then also had the privilege, privilege of living in England for quite a long time. I did, uh, after Berkeley, I went over and did a master's degree in England at Cambridge and, um, and had my first job in London and so on. Um, so that was kind of my early years. Um, and then, uh, and then of course we'll talk about the Shazam experiences. Um, and then post Shazam, I spent uh, many years working in technology, uh, both at Google for eight years and Dropbox for four years. So
0: I was looking through your CV and it kind of blew my mind a little bit, you know, starting out as kind of business development intern at Microsoft and then head of Android business development at Android, head of mobile operations at Dropbox, and of course, founder and original CEO, board director at Shazam, and and now, of course, uh, your new new startup guard. Tell us about how you kind of went from, I guess working for someone else to starting your own business was it was it an obvious natural thing for you or did you find it an uncomfortable process? How did it
1: happen? It wasn't part of a plan that I had. Um, the way it happened is I I was actually in a career um, uh, for quite a few years after university called management consulting. Um, so I worked at a couple different management consulting firms. Um, and these were their, the, the way they were organized is that in order to get from one level, the sort of junior level, onto the next level, you need you almost always needed an MBA. Uh and so I applied uh for MBA programs uh and ended up going to UC Berkeley again, a second time, uh, this time for my MBA. Um, and it was actually during my MBA uh, that I came, I realized, hold on, instead of going back into consulting at, with my MBA, maybe I should just start a company instead. That sounds like much more fun. Um, and so the inspiration came from being surrounded by a whole bunch of other MBA students um, who came from many different backgrounds and all had a, a large variety of different uh, goals, um, for after the MBA program, some of which desired, wanted to become entrepreneurs and start companies. Um, and when I met some of those folks, um, at the MBA program that became, uh, kind of that sort of turned on the switch light and, uh, made me think, oh, this, this could be the, the the way I want to go. and as I dug deeper, I became more and more interested in, and the entrepreneurial approach.
0: So tell us the spark for the first business. What was the first business Shazam or did you have other ideas and how did it happen? Talk us through those early years.
1: Yeah. So I I actually decided um, first uh, to have some co-founders before even knowing what the business would be. Um, I kind of felt like having a couple people that I thought highly of that would be in this kind of deep in this experience with me would kind of give me more, uh, sort of support, I guess, shall we say, um, especially doing this for the first time. So um, I started off with a couple co-founders, one of which had been a friend of mine in San Francisco, um, and he lived in London at the time. Uh, And then the second one was another, one of the MBA students at UC Berkeley, and he was from Belgium. So he had moved out uh, to the United States for the first time in his life to do his MBA at Berkeley. And uh, so we we said, yeah, let's start a business together. Um, and we thought that would be a, a fun exp- and exciting experience to tackle. Um, but we didn't know what the business would be. Uh, and, and we actually would uh, arrange brainstorming sessions to think about different business ideas. So we'd actually meet up in cafes. There was a summer in my MBA that I did uh, an internship at Microsoft in London. Um, and, uh, and so I, I was in London for that. I was also in London to do a semester abroad at London Business School. Um, and during that time, I'd meet up with my friend Diraj at cafes and we'd sort of brainstorm all kinds of different ideas and write them down and then sort of bounce them off each other and sort of critique them um, to see if we thought they had legs. Um, and uh, so that was sort of the period of time that we were in this brainstorming mode. Um, I was also thinking about ideas all the time when I would go jogging in Hyde Park or uh, just anywhere I was. I'd be always brainstorming ideas. And the Shazam idea was one that I just came up with and sort of started focusing on um, in a lot of my spare time. And so. I really love this point you're mentioning. I don't want my audience to miss this insight.
0: It, but basically, there's many people think starting a business is you have a business idea and then you bring people in. But the way you, you're describing that, I think is actually brilliant, that you just find people you really respect and, and think could bring value and team up with them to come up with the idea almost, like brainstorm together to, to make the idea. I think that's brilliant. You don't hear that enough in, in the startup process world. I think it's really interesting. So you have this idea, Shazam, and and so, I mean, of course, it's, it's a, probably a very expensive idea to make happen, but what do you do initially? How, how do you, how do you begin to make this idea in your head real with, with Dijan?
1: We had this concept and the concept was like, I always like to say that the breakthrough idea with Shazam was not, Hey, let's identify songs because actually that was something that was being tackled by multiple companies. Um, The breakthrough is that all the companies that were tackling that problem were doing it with known technologies. Um, so they were what was what known technologies could do was they could they could monitor radio play, monitor radio stations. Um, and they used different technical approaches for monitoring radio stations. um but even the pattern recognition approach of listening to the sound on the radio stations, uh, that problem of pattern recognition was far simpler than what Shazam was going to implement because you had a limited number of songs playing on the radio and you had nice clean signals coming from radio stations and so on. Um, and keep in mind, by the way, that the user experience for the end user, um, was certainly compromised because you had to, they had to, would have to say, this is the radio station I'm listening to. Tell me what song it is. So the breakthrough idea with Shazam. As I said, was not, what is that song? But the breakthrough idea of Shazam was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could implement that by just capturing the sound that's coming through thin air to the microphone of your phone? What if we can identify that song and implement pattern recognition that can work in just ambient environments with music? And then, of course, that those ambient environments would also have noise. Um, and other, uh, audio challenges that would make this a very difficult problem. And in addition, we would have to search against not just songs played on the radio, which is only around one or 200,000 songs, but all songs available to people, um, that could be heard in any public environment. And that would be tens of millions of songs. Um, so, um, so that was the idea. Um, and, um, And it really, I I would say that the first thing we realized very early on that, you know, the thing we have to conquer first, because as an entrepreneur, you always have to prioritize your, your infinite list of things to do. And what are they going to be the things you're going to tackle first? And we knew that what we had to tackle first was finding a genius technologist to basically tell us how to do this. And what we later learned would actually be invent this because we found out that no one knew how to do this. And in fact, you know, most of the PhDs in the area actually thought it was impossible. So, how did you go about finding that person? Yeah, that was like hunting a hunting for a needle in a haystack, as they say. Um, we we started by identifying what kind of skill set and educational background that person would have, and we concluded it was someone with a PhD in electrical engineering, focused on audio signal processing, um, and uh, and then ideally with a particular interest in music itself. Um, We then found that uh, there were several programs where you would find PhDs that had focused on audio signal processing and specialized in music. And two of the preeminent ones where a lot of them came out of uh, were MIT Media Lab and Stanford uh, had a group called the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Uh, And so out of those two programs, there might be two or three or maybe a few more PhDs, uh, graduating in any given year, um, that had such, uh, kind of narrow focus specialties as audios and music signal processing. Uh, and so then we began to go and hunt within those, that little world of people that were doing PhDs or had graduated from PhDs or professors to those PhDs out of those two programs um, over, over a period of recent years at the time. And, um, and, uh, and that's, and we began just to set up meetings and start, uh, trying to see if we could find a, a match in terms of someone that had the interest in joining us. And was this person Philip? No, Philip was my co-founder from Belgium. Um, he doesn't have a technical background. He, he came from a world of financial trading. Um, and then D Raj my other co-founder also from a business background. Um, so, no, the fourth person that we found that came out of the sen- Stanford's uh, group's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, he has four degrees from Stanford, uh, including uh, a PhD in mathematics and electrical engineering, um, is Avery Wang.
0: And so you, you, you interviewed, I guess, I'm assuming you interviewed avery and you realized he he could do it and 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 so how did you bring them on board how did how did the partnership structure work was was it what 25 percent each did you did you there and then agree structure how did you get that person on board a lot of people listening would love to get a quality technical person on board to help their business how did you do it
1: yeah so uh, we once we uh we felt the we met with Avery we felt like a real connection there and he um really i think he was excited about the opportunity although he was not sure you know if he would be able to technically achieve uh, this invention um but he was excited to at least embrace it and and give it a try um so he became the fourth co-founder once 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 he agreed to join and so now we had four co-founders um to embark on this company that by the way had no funding at that time um so in fact, we hadn't even legally incorporated, uh, the company at, at that time. Um, and so we embarked on those initial things to, uh, to legally incorporate the company as well as to invent the algorithms and file the patents and so on, uh, to create this invention of music recognition, uh, with ambient sound and noisy environments. Um, and, um, uh, we, oh. One of the philosophies that I felt was important, and this is not taken by every startup, but it's one that I felt would be foundational to long-term success of working together, was to just evenly split equity 25% times four. Um, so we did that because you can spend a lot of time, it was my belief, you can spend a lot of time saying, well, you know, I'm the CEO and I, you know, this I came up with the idea, but this person does all these things, and that guy invented the technology. And uh, you can you can come up with a million arguments for why you might disperse equity in um, in a sort of some type of relative fashion rather than just pure e- equality fashion. But the problem is a lot of those things also change over time. So the uh, relative contributions of the founders can change over time, and that can create a lot of foster a lot of competition. I I really saw one of the core risks as being just sort of um, you know, some type of uh, lack of unity between the the, the the co-founders, and I wanted to just create just complete unity where we were, we were all in this together, um, and so so yeah, so we did that, uh, a nice even split of twenty five percent each. Um, and then we embarked on building a company with all the traditional approaches where you raise angel financing, of course, that dilutes the company, um, where you have an employee pool um, that dilutes the company, and, and also where you eventually raise multiple rounds of venture capital that dilute, dilute the shares as well. So, um, so we embarked on all that.
0: I, I, I want to talk about the fundraising in a second because you, know, you know you reportedly raised 140 million in venture capital. But just before we go there, I just I just want to go back a step. Just wait one second. I don't want the audience to miss something. I think it's really really interesting and and I, I think a brilliant philosophy. You know, you, you didn't even have the business incorporated, but you were sharing the idea. So so many people listening, I know they have an idea and they're scared to share it, right? But you did, and that's partly I think what made it happen. Second thing I think you did that I don't want people to miss is this concept that just because you invented or you came up with the idea that you, you you should be there for the 51% shareholder. And, 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 and I know that seems to be the popular thing conceptually these days, but I think what, you've did, what you did is really smart. You created a company where there was a harmonious feeling and a culture from day one that was we're in it together. And, and that, that even split on the equity, I think it's just genius and not talked about enough anymore. Everyone talks about how like certain founders of companies have 80% of the controlling shares and so on and so forth. I do think what you've done there is is something worth highlighting and worth people realizing that there's no point in having 100 percent equity in something that doesn't work. Right. Or something you don't enjoy doing. And so I really think that's such a crucial insight there you've shared. And um, and, I, and I also think, you know, did, did, did Avery quit? Did everyone quit their job? What, what point did everyone say, right, we're full time on this? What, what was the kind of timeline on that?
1: Yeah. Uh, those are great, some great questions for those early, very early days. Um, yeah, so we were all, uh, Avery had just been, um, winding down a startup that he had tried to do on his own, uh, and had failed. So he was sort of ready for the next thing. So he didn't need to quit a job because he didn't have a job. Um, so he basically let, like, had just let go of that prior startup. Um, and then, uh, D. Um, did quit. He was the one that was fully gainfully employed and uh, was working for a company um, called Viant in London. Uh, and um, he did quit that, that job. Um, uh, the timing may not have been exact, so it might have been, I, I can't recall exactly, but it might have been a few months after we embarked. Um, so where he was still working at Viant, but he did basically quit and to do this full time. Um, and, um, and then Philippe and I were both in the last sort of six months of our MBA program. So we didn't need to quit any jobs. Um, we were just finishing up our MBA basically. Um, so we kind of really got started on Shazam in that last semester of, of the MBA program. Um, and, um, but then I would say the kind of real, Um, You know, the point where all four of us were really working full time um, was really, you know, from basically that last month of the MBA program onwards.
0: So, again, I I think this is uh, like it's just so insightful. You know, philosophy wise, everyone's now all in right? Everyone's now committed to this. But at this point, and this is probably where we should start talking about raising money, there's got to be costs in people's lives. You've got to pay rent or whatever. You've got to eat. So so now you've got this idea. You've got the team assembled. Um, There's two things, I guess, I want the audience to understand about your journey. One, did you allocate everybody a particular job? role? How did you divide up what had to get done? And two, let's get into the fundraising bit because I'm really fascinated how this worked.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. So in terms of allocating jobs, um, I sort of, I became this, the CEO, shall we say, because you have to, you ultimately need one kind of CEO. Um, and it was kind of was sort of my my baby, my idea, my concept, and, and pulled the team together. So it logically made sense for me to be the CEO. Um, and then Avery, uh, Avery was clearly focused on inventing the technology. So he was just, he was sort of uh, just purely focused on inventing the, the music recognition algorithm. But I would say other than that, uh, really, uh, other than Avery being solely focused on that, I would say that all the kind of responsibilities really just naturally, we naturally kind of fell into different people's laps. Um, so there wasn't, um, we didn't have a clear definition that said this person's the marketing person and this person is the partnerships person and this person is the product person and so on. Um, we actually uh, would kind of identify all the various tasks that we wanted to uh, tackle, and then we would uh, assign them amongst ourselves um, through a combination of who had available time and who was good at what, and just sort of, it's very, very organic. Um, But the one thing that we did do is that, you know, whoever took on any particular task you know, we all took it very seriously and did our absolute best job. And in many cases, we're taking on things that we'd never done in our life. You know, so I remember Philippe. I think was uh helping uh, write the patents, working with the patent lawyers. I mean, it was really Avery's inventions, but helping make sure those patents are properly written and filed, um, something he had never done before. Um, and uh, I. Uh, I can't even remember. I, I was leading the fundraising, certainly, from um, angel investors and, and venture capitalists, uh, as well as partnerships with mobile phone companies. So those were two of the things that I was focused on. Um, and d was doing all kinds of different things from, you know, uh, working with lawyers to incorporate the company to thinking about how where we would get offices to uh, getting some of our er- early hires on board, um, engineering, software engineering hires um, and so on. So, so again, the main thing I would say is it was very organic, um, rather than having clear delineated responsibilities. Um, but, but there would be an owner, um, there would be a key owner, a key person responsible, um, for every single thing that, and we always knew who that person was so that the balls were never dropped on all these important things.
0: Again, I I think today the way people are... I kind of taught how to build a company. When I see it out there, it's almost like, okay, you need a marketing person, someone specialist in marketing. All right. And you now you need a legal person. And they build it based on job title. That seems to be the trend now. And, I, and I, what I really like about this insight is that you built it based on culture, really, that kind of you knew each other, you liked each other, it was fun to work with each other, and you were responsible, smart people that could learn anything. So then you would go and see what needs to get done and take responsibility for those things, which I think has got lost in startup world a little bit now. Do, do you think that's true, or am I just seeing it in my own bubble?
1: You know, I I'm, I feel like a little out of touch in the startup world to really know. Um, there's, there's so many startups out there, um, and they are all being tackled in different ways. So it's really hard. I mean, I think for some people, are really on the grounds today that are working as, say, in, as a, among the super angels or the venture capital firms, or or the, even the incubators and, and accelerators, they would see so many startups that they might just see trend trend lines in terms of how these are being tackled. Um, but I'm a, I feel like a little bit uh, a little bit outside of, of, of what's going on to really make any judgment of, of those trends
0: fair enough and i think the, the you as a group now so you're working together and you 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 kind of know what needs to get done and must have been a lot of pressure on avery my instinct because because he really was key to, if he couldn't invent it then then there was no business so there must have been a lot of pressure on him at that moment and then uh, at what point did you say right let's raise money and what were your first steps a lot of people today want to know how to raise money i actually think that hasn't changed much uh, in in the years but how did it work for you how did you go about um, Raising 140—that's that's the urban legend. You raise 140 million. Feel free to um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but let me know how how did how did you do it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so the, I guess what we should focus on for because we're of the stage of the company that we've been talking about is that initial fundraising that we did, um, which was a, a tiny amount compared to the 140 million that was eventually raised through many rounds of venture capital. Um, our initial fundraise. Um, it was a, a, a bridge financing uh, structure uh, of one million dollars. Although, it, and I think it initially started off by being just a few hundred thousand dollars, um, but we had um, in the lo- in this sort of bridge loan that we had the ability to raise up to a million, and we did raise a million um, in angel money um, prior to embarking on venture capital fundraises. Um, and by the way, our first venture capital round was seven and a half million dollars. So that was the Series A. Um, so, if I focus in on the uh, that initial funding from the angel investors, often referred to as seed funding, um, the approach that we took uh, was was well, it's worth noting, by the way, that we were starting this company in London. Um, and in London, especially at that time, um, you didn't have nearly as sophisticated uh, network of angel investors as you might find in Silicon Valley. Um, the, just because of the, just, just the raw number of um, high net worth individuals in Silicon Valley who'd made their money um, by starting technology startups. Um, there weren't anywhere close to that in London at the time. Um, so there weren't sort of these established networks of angel investors um, that you could get in front of. or or And there wasn't anything, any concept like a super angel either at the time. Um, so we knew that... Uh, an angel investor really meant someone who had a significant amount of money to deploy, um, and was and had a, uh, would be willing to take a small risk with a small time, portion of that as an angel investment. Um, that that's what characterized an angel investor. Um, and I would say very few of the angel investors that we went after were really highly active angel investors. So they might have just had a handful of of investments they would have done. Again, that's very different than what we see today in Silicon Valley. Um, so, uh, so the the approach that that we took um, really came from thinking what optimized for us, the company, and what optimized for them, the investor. Um, and what optimized really was this sort of um, what I like to say is a, a unfair advantage, shall we say? And what I mean by an unfair advantage is someone who has um, knowledge, expertise, and contacts in an area that would that was very relevant to us as a startup. Um, so, if you think about well, you know what were we were doing, we were starting a technology company focused on music and on mobile phones. Um, and so, the advantage of finding people that have this expertise in that area, music and mobile phones and technology startups, was that we, of course, get um, both highly beneficial. Uh, advice that comes along with the investor um, because that's advice that's relevant to their their knowledge base. Um, and then we also get validation. So let's say we got a, an investor that came from one of the major record labels. We could say, hey, this guy invested in, in Shazam and that was validation um, for when we went to the venture capitalists. Um, and then for their perspective, if they invested in a company that was somewhat close to their expertise, they feel like they can use this unfair advantage to basically help then help a company that they also invested in um, and that helps bring back uh, a greater return on their investment. Um, and plus they would find it enjoyable because I think a big motivator for many angel investments in, in angel investors is not only the potential upside return, but it's the uh, feeling of purpose and the, um, the feedback of being able to help a company um, in a space that you know really well. Um, so you can see, um, how synergistic this was for us to, to be able to pursue people like that. And that's exactly who we pursued, um, from the ground up. And by the way, without any really warm leads. So, uh, literally starting from cold, um, essentially cold calling and cold emailing, um, we were able to get as investors, the former chairman of EMI, which was one of the five major record labels, uh. With the former chairman of BMG in the United Kingdom, again, another one of the five major record labels. Um, The former, uh, the founder and chief technology officer of Liquid Audio, which is not a famous company today, but at the time was a publicly listed music technology company. Um, The uh, CTO of British Telecom, which of course is a telecommunications company. and, uh, and so on. And, and the list goes on and on, but you can see a theme there. These are all people that we approached that you know, we felt like had an expertise and a background relevant to us. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, it benefited us. It gave us validation. We could say these people were our investors. It gave us advice from people that had expertise in our air in that were in areas relevant to our business. And it gave them the feeling that they could give feedback and guidance to us that was relevant to their expertise and background and therefore give an unfair advantage to their own, own investments. Um, so um, and then finally, the, the, you can see that they, when they saw our business pr- uh, plan and presentation, the, you know, the, the chance that it would really connect with them as an investment was higher because they understood um, music and the music consumer um, and mobile in some cases. So, um, so that, that's how we went about it. That was our approach. Um, and um, and it allowed us to raise uh, several hundred thousand uh, then leading to a million dollars in in angel investments.
0: I think it's genius and an insight I love my audience to have. That you uh, very carefully selected a team that could bring value, and then investors that could bring value, and I and I, I think that gets overlooked by a lot of people. They go and join, raise money from whoever might have money, and 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 I think what you've done there uh, by explaining that is make people perhaps reminded people that how invaluable it is to have people that know what you don't know, and 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 they can also help. I'm, tell us who was the first person to say yes, and maybe that there must have been. ai am I'm feeling the excitement now of you know emi chairman saying i'm in you know like th- tell us about that moment take us back to that moment the first investor who said yes
1: you know embarrassingly i can't remember who the first one is but i do think it might well have been the emi chairman actually uh, because it, um because that you know it's, you get success breeds success and so once we had him, I remember often telling people, "Oh, we've had we have the chairman of BMI as an investor, uh, you know, and uh, and that opens the door from the chairman of BMG, uh, and, uh, right. and then once you have the chairman of BMG and the chairman of BMI, and so on." So it definitely success breeds success. Um, uh, but yeah, I do remember uh, going to and again, you have to keep in mind that we literally had no direct connection and not even a warm connection via a friend to some to some of these folks. So literally, we would just like find them on the internet email them and and then in some cases they were kind enough to take a meeting with us um, and then I, I still remember going out to meet the Sir Colin Southgate, who was had been the chairman of EMI, and meet him at his London. He had a London pad that was right on the Thames, and um, and he lived. You know, his proper house was out in the countryside, but uh, yeah, we met him at that London pad, and and uh, we kind of. I still remember walking into his living room and and sitting down with our presentation and walking him through uh, this this uh, this uh, what really looked like a ahead of its time technology at uh, that time of we're going to identify songs. Um, and being so excited when um, you know seeing his excitement because you can imagine someone that's come from a whole career running uh, a large record label how he can see the opportunity for this among music consumers. Uh, so yeah, it's very exciting to to get someone like that to write to write a check, a personal check right there and uh, put it in your bank account and, and say we've got this guy as an investor.
0: Amazing. I'm feeling the excitement now of that moment. So to to those listening, what what is a bridge loan? How how does a bridge loan system work?
1: Yeah, bridge loan is a, um, I think they even have a new name. I think they call it a SAFE now. If if entrepreneurs Google SAFE, S-A-F-E it's the acronym that's now been given to that. Um, It's become very standardized uh, in that format now. Um, But essentially, I I like to think of it as the best way to simplify um, it's a form of, it's a form of raising financing. Cause of course, if you raise money, you have to somehow paper that or document it and, and at, create some paperwork around the fact that someone has given you money, uh, as an, as an entrepreneur and that paperwork has to make them feel like they're going to now own a, a share of your company because that's why they're investing. Um, but the, the advantages of a bridge loan or a safe, um, as compared to, The more uh, mature forms of documenting an investment, which would be um, an actual share, you know, uh, subscription agreement to um, uh, actually allocating equity shares to to the investors, um, is that uh, it's far simpler to put in place a bridge loan or a safe um, it's because it's just a very, very simple loan agreement. So, so the paperwork is, paperwork is very simple. Um, whereas the, you know, the full subscription agreement for equity, you could easily spend 50 to a hundred thousand dollars on legal fees, putting that together, which you don't really want to do when you're, uh, an angel, you know, raising that seed stage round, that might be a good chunk of your entire round. Um. So that's one thing. The second thing is a part of the reason that's so simple to put in place is that there's almost nothing to negotiate. Um, you know, you're you're literally it's it's the headline terms. Um from the perspective of the investor is simply that they're putting in this much money money and they're going to get it's going to convert to equity in the future once you raise a proper venture round um at probably some some discounts or they're getting some advantage by investing today so what they're really basically what what the investor is thinking is that they're going to get the same terms as the first venture capital investor gets Um, because that's when all the real details are going to get worked out around liquidation preferences and anti-dilution clauses and all the very complicated things that get negotiated in a proper financing round. So what the early stage investor, by joining a bridge loan, is really uh, accepting is that they're going to get the same terms that some very sophisticated uh, venture capital investor will negotiate in the future, but the one advantage they're going to get is some discount, like say, for example, 20% discount. Um, and so they, they get their price they're paying is, let's say, 20% cheaper than what the venture capital investor ends up paying for those preferred shares. So that that's basically the best way to think about it. So it's a super simple, fast way and a very economical way to get money into your company with headline terms that are acceptable to angel investors because they know they're getting the discount and they're getting whatever the terms may be that will be negotiated in the future by the sophisticated venture capital investor. Basically, for the listeners, it
0: also means you're saying basically they don't have to worry about trying to guess the valuation. There's no there's no friction between you and the investor because there is no discussion about that. I mean, you can predict what you think it could be worth, but you don't have to have a, a, an argument almost <laughs> about that. You know, you you can you can say, look, when when as you're saying the sophisticated investors come in, no offense to the angels, but when the sophisticated investors come in later, like the Series A, you got a 7.5 million later. That's the valuation fix, and they'll get a 20% discount on that for coming in early and supporting early, That's correct. which I think a lot of people don't understand this or this thing. And as you say, it's standardized now. This feels like it was a bit ahead of its time
1: 20 years ago, though, you doing this. Uh, people did it. It just it just hadn't become as mainstream as today. I mean, you know, now there's this safe. I think the safe is a sort of a standard document that a lot of people use. But um, there were there were definitely entrepreneurs that were doing it back then. Um, the uh, one concept that I don't think existed back then that is much more common now is the concept of a cap um, so that, you know, so that, you know, OK, so you you may think, well, I don't know what valuation we're agreeing, but you know, it just protects the investor should the valuation go astronomically high. Um, and then they kind of didn't really get a very good deal for investing in that very early stage when there was a lot of risk. So, um, so uh, I don't think we had a cap, but I think nowadays it'd be very common. If I were to, in, in some a couple of angel investments I have done, uh, it seems to be very common that you have some type of cap. So you're saying we don't know what the we don't know what the you know valuation is today, but at a min, you know we're not it's not going to be higher than X. You know. So, um, you know, whatever's pick some number, uh, five, 10, 15 million or whatever it is, um, becomes the cap, uh, so that, you know, that even if the venture round ends up valuing you at a hundred million, you at the angel investor got in at 10 million evaluation. Um, if there's a cap that's agreed. But you didn't have that back back then. No, no, uh, yeah. So I mean, because as you said, it was early days. Because this was the year two thousand when we were doing this, um, and so yeah, I think the concept of a cap, I wasn't even aware of at that time. Because as you said, it was a definitely early days in terms of um, those types of uh, structures.
0: So yours did without getting technical on the numbers side, but yours was a bridge. You mentioned around two hundred thousand up to a million, but then Series A was seven point five. So, so that that, there was probably um, I'm going to I'm going to say a a lower percentage of equity for those early investors because the round was probably quite high, right? I mean, seven point five sounds quite high
1: for Series A. Back in those days, yeah, just doing the numbers roughly. Let's just say a million dollars of angel money, but that, let's say, let's say you got a 20% discount. So you could argue that at the venture round, it bought in, um, you know, 1.2 million worth of equity. Um, and uh, I'm just, you know, I don't know if I'm getting all the mathematics right here, but, uh, and then there's the other additional seven and a half million that's coming in from the venture capitalists. So that brings you up to uh, about eight, close to 9 million um, in total capital that's being recognized as being coming in from investors. Um, and then, of course, you have a valuation um, and uh, post-money valuation and 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 dilution that is typically in the range of um, the venture capital round is usually considered. It's quite common it to be in the 25 to 35% dilution for the company, um, not including the employee pool and so on.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, someone listening will probably do the math for us and put it in a comment down below. I'd be quite interested to see how that plan played out. But but I, I wanted to get on to, you know, um, 2018 18 years later you know which which a lot of people think shazam was overnight of course um and, and i know um you know you talk a lot about persistence but 18 years you you sell it to apple for i reported speculative i guess at 400 million i know i know that's uh, out there on the on the internet as that but um just before we get on to that just before we get on to the, the 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 how did it happen with apple i don't want to skip 18 years i, I just want to finalize these early years and and so um when you um when you said right okay uh, we've got the bridging money when did you know that this invention Avery was able to do it it was going to work you know what in that life cycle of, was it like the first six months was it you know when did you know that your idea that you had that day uh with d you knew now it was it was going to happen was there a moment
1: well, it depends how you define going to happen. So do you mean that it would te- be work technically feasible or do you mean it would be technically feasible and someone would be able to use it on their phone and consumer, so a live production? Or do you mean that it would become like broadly mainstream, um, and, you know, widely recognized by millions of people around the world like it is today? Which of <laughs> those three?
0: I love that last line, you know. When, when did you know it would be widely used by millions of people? I'll go
1: <laughs> with that. That one wasn't until the App Store launched in 2008. Um, yeah, so for eight eight years after starting the company. Um, because you know, so and I'll, I guess I just may as well answer all three for you. So you know, the the point where I knew that the point where I felt inc- incredibly confident that it, that we were going to make it work technically, because you might you can invent something, but you don't know if it's actually going to work at scale sometimes. But um, the f- point where we invented an algorithm that I felt very confident would work, and obviously we were so confident we we were able to translate that confidence over to the venture capital investors that were writing a seven and a half million dollar check. That would have been you know this summer. You know, in that summer of the first summer, basically, when we invented the algorithm um, and then built a demo to demonstrate it working um, and then it did calculations and even went under underwent due diligence with the venture capitalists to to uh, to demonstrate that we thought it could scale at, um, a huge database of songs. So that's that first summer um, going into the full 12 month period that it took to raise the venture capital money. Um, the second part of, you know, will well, can we actually commercially deploy this so that people can will actually you'll actually have real users out there using it? I mean, it, it took us a year then with the venture capital money to build that out um, and and launch it commercially um, to the to the public. Our first market being the UK, um, and uh, and and you know there was definitely unknowns along that period of time. It's like will the mobile op- at the time we needed mobile operators to partner with us for the early version of our. Of our service, which was pre-apps, um, and uh, so will they? Will these huge behemoth companies like British Telecom, O2, Orange, T-Mobile, Vodafone, will they partner with a, this, us, this little dinky little startup, um, and integrate with us to allow us to offer this service? Um, and, you know, will that work? Will, it, will we get all the music database that we need? You know, will we um, get all the technical pieces working? So I felt confident about it all, but it, but none of it was easy. So that was an additional year out. Um, so at the time of our launch in summer of 2002, that's when we knew, okay, we now have a commercial service um, anyone in the UK can use and we've done it. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't anywhere close enough to prove that we could be a viable business because we only had we had so few users. So then we had to wait, and this is what I like to talk about sometimes when I give talks is that we had to wait a period of six years from two thousand and two, which was our commercial launch in the UK, until the launch of the app Store on iPhones in two thousand and eight. And during those six years, we came nowhere close to having enough users or meaningful number of users or usage to to become a viable, business ongoing entity that could generate enough cash and revenue to sustain its own livelihood. Um, so we were burning cash. We we're near bankruptcy. We had multiple rounds of layoffs. Um, and we were barely surviving as a company looking for any Avenue to, you know, bring in some revenue and help pay the bills, um, for that whole six year period. Um, and, and, you know, it's amazing to me. We actually survived six years because it's a long time to survive when you're burning cash and, and don't even have a, 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 a line of sight in terms of what's going to save you. Um, and, um, but yeah, so it's when the app store launched in 2008 and that that's the point that I think really answers your question. Um, because that's the point when we were there, we had been hand-selected as one of the f- apps that would be in the initial launch of the App Store by Apple. Um, and um, and there we were. And immediately when they launched, it was sort of a meritocracy of apps um, where apps would get downloaded. And whichever apps were downloaded the most frequently were the ones that would get ranked more highly in their App Store. And I could see right away that we were a top-ranked app, and we stayed there. Um, and I was hearing verbal feedback even from people that I worked with at Google at the time that, oh, wow, we love this thing. It's an app that identifies songs. It's like magic. You know, it really stood out from many of the other apps where you would just do something functional and maybe play a game or turn on a flashlight or whatever it may be. But then there was this one app that would identify the sound in the room and tell you what song it was. And it really stood out at the time as, as like, wow, that's not just an app. That's like a piece of magic. Um, and um, that's the time when I have to admit I was addicted to going and checking that, um, app store rankings. I would like look at it every night. i like, where are we now? What number are we now? And, uh, and it was because like, it was like, basically it was like seeing, you know, your, uh, you release a movie into Hollywood and there it is like up there on the billboards, you know, um, as one of the you know top most popular movies, it was like i couldn't believe it you know especially after such a long period of time as i said the, the the two years of building the company followed by six years of survival and now we're at eight years out and then finally this is all happening now keep in mind it was a small number of iphone users at the time it would have been single digit millions of of iphone users and there was no android um but in the ensuing years with the with the adoption worldwide of iphone and android uh, shazam just grew like uh, like crazy. And, 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 and in the, even in most recent years, um, leading up to the Apple acquisition in 2018, we'd consistently get 8 million downloads per month per month. Um, and that's not, there's no, we didn't do any, we didn't do any advertising by the way, there was no advertising in Shazam. That all came from just people talking about Shazam, you know, maybe a little bit, um, seeing it in the ranked rankings in the app store and downloading it, but mostly just telling each other about it. Uh, but yeah, so that was just incredibly, incredibly satisfying. Just seeing these eight million new downloads every month come in just organically, without any real advertising. Um, so yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question.
0: Oh, just uh, I just I feel like I'm there with you. I feel like I'm literally like going through the experience of it. So and there's a really important lessons. I I don't want anyone to miss. There's a couple of things I want to highlight, right? But first of all, I think timing, timing in building a company. Sometimes you're too early. I mean in reality you were too early right that that you know what, what what year did you raise the 7.5 million series A what was that what year was that 2001 2001 so you know you literally lived off that dream 6 7 years until the app store now here's the irony apple uh, ended up spending 400 million or so on you guys uh, and they that, but you probably wouldn't have survived if they hadn't opened up the app store yeah everything's interlinked isn't it and, but your survival, your persistence, timing, people listening right now that think their business maybe isn't working is huge part of luck in life is persistence, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You must have thought about quitting a few times. In fact, if I look at your career, uh, something happened, right? You, you got, you, 2004, you went head of Android business. You went and built the Android ecosystem to, to try and help build another ecosystem that was missing, um, while, while Apple were building a. Um, their system of course but so so something happened there did you get was that a part-time job to keep yourself going how did you what was that
1: no no because with shazam really i started the company along with my co-founders and then after four years you know this is traditional concept of four-year vesting i'm sure you've heard of um but one of you know one of uh, one of the things that we agreed to on our term sheet was uh we will hire a gray-haired CEO. It was literally on our term sheet you know, because we are these young kids, basically, um, uh, starting this company. And understandably, you know, uh, venture capitalists, especially back at that time, by the way, nowadays, venture capitalists much more are all about how do we harness the, the passion of the founder? And that's why you have these businesses that are, um, you know, run by their founders like Mark Zuckerberg and so on. But, but back then, um, that was not the way things played out. Um, and so, you know, it was a business was something that had to be professionally managed by, bi- um, experienced business managers. Um, and we were not that. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we agreed to hire in, uh, I hired my own boss, my own uh, new CEO. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and the company struggled and struggled and, and, uh, all the founders uh, left the business at different points of time. Um, you know, we 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 had all our equity vested, um, and uh, and and it was the hand the business was in the hands of professionally hired people who um, you know took on the brunt of of running it during these struggling times. Um, and um, so so I kept my board seat, and I was very passionate about Shazam, and put in hours and hours and hours into Shazam every every week of my life after leaving Shazam, but I did leave Shazam, um, and to join Google full-time in 2004. So four years after starting it.
0: Was that, did, did you, were you happy about that? I mean, did, how did you feel seeing your baby run by someone else? Did, did, did you, did you live with it? Did you, was it frustrating?
1: I would say there, it was, but there were good things. So there's different people that ran it, by the way, they, or during those ensuing years, there were three different CEOs. There was this original CEO that I hired followed by an another ceo that was brought in for quite a few years uh, followed by another ceo that was brought in uh, again these are basically brought in by the venture capitalists you know who own the bulk of the company especially after all these down rounds um and um i would say that there are pros and cons so the the pros were was like is that okay i can just move on and 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 take on some new experiences in my career um you know and pretty exciting ones at google to be part of google during those amazing years be part of the Android ecosystem from its very first day as I joined when the very first phone was launched um, and um you know, and go to Dropbox when it was just a hundred people, and you know, eventually became a public company with a couple thousand people. Um, so those were great experiences. So I got, I had the opportunity to go pursue those while still having my hand in the pie of Shazam because I, I had all my equity vested, and I was a board member, and I would fly across the world to the board meetings every other month, um, and still be able to give my guidance and my thoughts. Um, and uh, so, fr- so from that perspective, it was wonderful. Um, And then, you know, but as you said, it's not without its uh, frustrations, because there's definitely many times when. I would think, oh, wait, hold on. The CEO is doing this or they're not doing that. And those were things that I, c- I thought were, could risk the livelihood of the business. And I could, I could probably spend an hour with you walking through all the different examples of things where, was, where I was like really worried that they were making a, a bad decision. And I would actually end up spending even more of my time um, having to convince them to do certain things that I felt were important to the business. Um so that would be the frustrating side of it. But overall, I would say it was win-win and we had some talents and CEOs.
0: Again, it's an interesting one because I, I, I personally uh, meet a lot of people that they're the reason their business isn't growing. They kind of made themselves a the center of it all. And 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 they don't want to bring in. They're, maybe they're specialists, but they don't want to. Uh, they're they're a generalist, but they don't they don't release uh, things that have got more complicated to to specialists. They, and and the other side, I also see people that have you know maybe walked away from the business when they were when they were key to ensuring it it would it would continue its culture and continue its its trajectory to success so is a, it's a difficult balance but I, I do love the way you've explained it having that experience for yourself and i'm pretty sure you know you being at android in the early days and being at dropbox in the early days perhaps helped shazam that experience of what you were learning there but i see a gap 2016 of course the company was sold in 2018 there's a two-year gap there did you go back did you get involved or what, what happened uh i'm sorry so, two thousand and sixteen, you were uh, two thousand two thousand and eleven, two thousand and sixteen, you're head of mobile operations business development at Dropbox. But of course, uh, Shazam didn't get sold till two thousand and eighteen. What did you do between two thousand and sixteen and two
1: thousand and eighteen? Okay, um, well, really, ever since two thousand and sixteen, from two thousand and sixteen onwards, um, I, I, I left. I had left. What was twelve years in Silicon Valley technology industry? Eight years at Google and four years at Dropbox, um, and I. Although the Shazam acquisition had not happened until a couple years later, I kind of anticipated it was coming around the corner. We were at a comp- we were at a stage of the company where the momentum, the revenue, the um, just where where we were uh, and our trajectory, I felt confident we'd get to an exit. Um, and I just kind of decided to kind of be my own boss for a while, and and uh, I began um, I began. Uh, I mean, I I continued to be involved in the Shazam board, um, but I also begun just spending my my time the way I wanted to spend it, and that includes right now. It's been my focus area to kind of incubate uh, a new startup um, at a very, very slow rate. Um, I'm not trying to rush it, and I'm taking a very different approach than I did with Shazam in terms of raising money and burning through cash and trying to hit milestones all in a very certain period of time. Um, And so so I've done that. Uh, I've done that. I've also done professional speaking. Um, so then, uh, a couple different things, uh, and since 2016. So,
0: so your, your, new startup, I want to get onto in a minute guard. Um, can you tell us what it is? Or if you tell us you have to kill us, is it, is it like that? What, what's, what are you, what are you trying to achieve there?
1: Yeah. So I had, um, so there are several things I wanted to achieve. Uh, I, I, I like to say there are ingredients to how I came about picking this particular business. Um, so one ingredient is I wanted it to be mission driven or impact driven. So I wanted it to be more about, you know, how it helped the world, and less focused on is it going to be a hugely lucrative, financially successful you know, business? I, I want it to be a viable business, by the way, and of course I want it to be um, have a fun, be a financial success. But I'm not trying to build a billion dollar company. That's that's far from from my areas of interest. Um, so so this one is this particular one is it's dra- preventing drowning in swimming pools using computer vision. Um, and I should mention that that kind of brings you to some of the other ingredients. I wanted it to involve um, you know, cutting edge disruptive technologies. And if one of the hot areas now is, of course, computer vision, artificial intelligence. And that's one of the core ingredients into Guard um, is leveraging that that new, uh, all the new capabilities that have been brought by advancements in, in artificial intelligence and computer vision. Um, I wanted it to be um, a small business, uh, so not a huge industry. So something that is not really of interest to google and facebook and amazon and 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 um, frankly it's probably not even of interest to many venture capitalists because again the upside the the market size the market opportunity is just not big enough so this is one that would the investment that will come in for it eventually it might come from you know high net worth individuals that have a desire to have some type of impact driven um, investments and so on Um, and uh, and then I wanted to, uh, and then finally, I want to um, kind of go at a very, I don't want it to be about go, 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 must capture the whole market so we can win in two years and all this stuff. I mean, it's just too much stress and and it's sort of, you know, you either win or you fail very quickly. And uh, I wanted it to be kind of incubated sort of over time and tackle different risks over time just thoughtfully. Um, and so that's how I've, I've been going about it. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's how Guard guard fits into to kind of the ingredients of what I wanted my next business to be. Um, and, um, and as I said, I just sort of, am bootstrapping it now. Um, and um, it w- at some point, I will probably raise some money because it will need some money for sure. It, has, it will require more more money than I'm willing to invest in it. Um, and, um, and I'll have to go to sort of individual or impact investors for that, that money. And then at that time, I might well even hire a, a sort of a full-time CEO to run, run the show. Um, because I kind of want to build up sort of the, the core. Um, but, uh, but I kind of feel like I, I enjoy the sort of, um, being off to the side a little bit in terms of, uh, of, of having running the show. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that even Uber was started that way. Like Travis was not the founder of Uber. He was hired in as the CEO by, by the founder of Uber. Um, the founder of Uber, was, you know, always just sort of remained on the board and, and, uh, um,
0: Yeah, it it makes sense. Well, you know yourself, don't you? I think you know yourself at this point, and you. I I think it's really interesting. I actually see a trend in the two hundred odd successful people that I've interviewed, that when you get to a certain point and you know who you are, like purpose driven a purpose driven business means so much the, the ability to actually do something that you really enjoy but also recognize your strengths and weaknesses and bring in people to do the things that you aren't necessarily you know w- not wanting to do maybe you could do them but you don't want to do them and i think that, i think that's really interesting by the way i think there's a huge market actually in uh, in this avoid avoid drowning uh, element and i I'm, I'm thinking of having a swim pool in my house and i'm i'm not having one because everybody i tell i'm thinking of getting a swim pool to says well your son my son's 4 years old could end up in that swim pool you have got to be really careful and it puts me off having something that I think could be a lot of fun for for the family so you know it it, it is actually I think um, a really really important idea uh, come to think of it Um, but just just stepping back a second because I know the audience will want to hear this Um, so so Apple buys Shazam for reported 400 million one of the biggest acquisitions
1: for Apple at the time ever and so how did that happen? Shazam reached a point where it was ready for or it was ready for an exit and, and and there's two types of exits really there's the type that you don't anticipate where someone just comes in and makes an offer that is just too good to say no to um and then there's the type where a company just says okay we're ready to to have a liquidation for the investors um you know and some companies and people often don't realize how few it is but some you know meet all the right criteria to, to go ipo um, but that's a, that's just a small fraction of, of all companies and far more exits occur through M and A. Um, and so, um, in, in the mergers and acquisition process, I mean, it, you know, it's often a very kind of thoughtfully, uh, approached process where you engage with, uh, investment bankers and, you know, depending on which size company you are, they could be different. There's little boutique firms and bigger firms. Shazam was big enough to be, to be able to, um worked with uh, the then the number one ranked internet guy over at uh Goldman. And um and uh so we, we were very lucky. We got to 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 work with some excellent um bankers and that that are highly specialized in selling companies. Um and so they already have relationships with and they know how to pitch your company to the big buyers, right? The and the big buyers are obvious, right? Big tech companies that we all know. Um and then um, you go through a whole process is a very well kind of it's been done many times before um, where you go through due diligence with interested buyers and um, open up data uh, archives to, to them and so on. And um, and then you and then you kind of identify who, who are serious and you end up in sort of a, a bidding process until someone uh, basically finds a match with you and 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 a price and and then you uh, agree terms and close the deal so that's what happened and for us the buyer ended up being Apple um and, and often it's it's also worth mentioning that I think a lot of successful acquisitions come from um relationships that have already been formed um, and um, and so Apple we Shazam already had years and years of history of very Close relationship with Apple, and we we were the I think it was the number one uh, affiliate for iTunes uh, back in the day when iTunes was you know the iTunes was the you know it the predecessor to Apple Music and Spotify right when when music digital music wasn't streaming it was downloads but yeah Shazam drove about um, in, in the heyday of downloads Shazam would drive about three hundred million dollars a year worth of iTunes downloads um, so that that's people Shazaming songs. And then saying oh you know i'd like to download this to my iphone if they're an iphone user um and then um and then uh clicking download and then buying the song and so there was an affiliate relationship around that we were also a premier always a premier app so we often worked closely with apple on um, new platform releases when they you know we would want to showcase the latest features that they would release in a new version of OS, of their ios um and uh we also had a commercial partnership with them where we powered music recognition for Siri. So if you use Siri to identify a song that was really Shazam in the background doing that. Um, so there's a bunch of things we had been doing with Apple. Um, so they already knew who we were and, and how we complemented um, many of the things in their business. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was, a. Uh, a match made from heaven and, uh, and it's certainly a, a match made from heaven from the perspective of a founder selling his company, just cause, um, I just think, you know, what a great home for Shazam to end up in a, a company that cares so much about user experience and, um, is so passionate about music, um, and, um, and, uh, and obviously, uh, passionate about, uh, smartphones. So it's such a great fit for Shazam.
0: Uh, it's it's you know, th- th- there's there's so much in what you've just talked about there. I, again, I don't want my audience to miss. And one of the things you said earlier that linked to what you're talking about now is is partnerships. You said earlier that you you formed partnerships with people. You would work with like BT and these other these other institutions. And I think this is a really crucial lesson for anyone listening. You know, those people you think are your competitors are actually your partners. You think they're your competitors; they're actually your partners. And so many people talk to us about how they don't want to share their idea with X because X will copy them. And nine times out of ten, those big companies can't do what you've done; they would rather work with someone. I had the same experience. I partnered up with PwC, Price Waterhouse Coop,er, my last company, and they end up buying that company. And so they could have they could have done if they'd spent two years, three years doing. It, they could have copied it. But most of the time it's people that make these things work, right? So you've you've I think it's a really important lesson you've shown there from like your early days of partnering with people to your even your acquisition later. You know, your biggest, I guess, partner ended up buying you. You know, it's such a valuable lesson that yeah. gets missed. So thank you for highlighting it. Sure. And and just to finalise, just to kind of uh, I guess uh, final kind of thing I don't I want the audience to 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 learn from you. Um, well, I would say um, so. So you sold the company. Um, I could probably do on the back of the envelope how much money you ended up making, but it doesn't matter. You create history. You know, you 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 create literally a piece of history that will never be forgotten. I remember the first time I used Shazam, and I, I'll, I'll never forget the restaurant I was in. I'll never think I thought it was magic. You've created history being a part of that. And then the process of which you built the company and did other things at the same time. It, it's a, a real story and, um, and and I really really admire you and admire it. But I think one of the things I'd really be interested in, because everyone's dream is to build up a company and sell it. And and But what's it like after? You've sold it and now you're building Guard. I, I don't know how long it took you to come up with Guard. I don't know if you followed the same process of brainstorming with, with people you like. But, but what was it like after the sale? Well, tell, tell people
1: about that for a moment. So it's worth mentioning that all the way until Shazam was bought, I was obsessed with it. Like I literally, I mean, I, even though I left the company on a full-time basis in 2004, the, the the period from 2004 to 2018, 14 years, I was obsessed with it. I would I would work on it on weekends. I, you'd find me in a cafe in San Francisco, spending the entire days working on Shazam stuff. Um, you know, no one's assigning me this stuff, by the way. It was self-assigned because I had no responsibilities, but but you know, I was like researching things, connecting with people constantly trying to find ways to improve it. Um, and, um, across many fronts, many different angles of the business. Um, and, um, that was fun. I really enjoyed all that and that obsession, but also I was able to let go of it all finally when Apple bought it. Cause at that point it was like, okay, now Apple owns this baby and I'm letting go of it. And I haven't, I haven't spent any time on Shazam at all since Apple acquired it. And I would say from that perspective, It's a, it's both, I mean, it's on one hand, it's, you know, you're handing something off. So you're having to say, you're saying goodbye, but it's also nice. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's like, almost like graduating from, graduating from university or, or, you know, whatever it may be, it's, it's a real point of finale. Um, So I'd say, uh, you know, it's very satisfying. And especially knowing, you know, you realize with these companies that, there's ups and there's downs and and it's so hard to predict and and so doesn't matter how successful you are, you could be hitting really hard times and become irrelevant one day. Um, so it's nice to this sort of clinches the deal when you have this sort of ex- exit and acquisition. Um, you're like, you've, 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 secured it. You're not going to go backwards from that. It's happened. Um, and that's a nice feeling because there's, there's, I think fear and anxiety is a, an integral part of every entrepreneurial entry, every entrepreneur's experience. And that's just natural. You should have that. It's, it's a motivator for entrepreneurs. It's normal to have, and it's, um, natural and it leads to even, um, in ma- many cases, those entrepreneurs becoming even better at what they do and having better outcomes. But but it's also, you know, takes a toll on you. All that fear and anxiety over time, and so it's nice to just um, have a have a finale and and be like, okay, this this thing is out there. It succeeded. Um, so that that kind of uh, that kind of um, conclusion was was very satisfying. Um, and then, you know, to have. Uh, you know the financial outcome was was definitely a satisfying thing. I mean, it was not as big as one might think because of all the dilution rounds that occurred over many years. Is a lot of dilution and dilution. If you if you're familiar with the dynamics of financing rounds and dilution terms, liquidation preference terms, and all these things, and dilution compounded on dilution compounded on dilution, especially in down rounds, you can end up with a, a lot of dilution and very little equity. So. So, um, so, uh, anyway, there've been companies like, uh, that are, have been sold for billions of dollars where the founders made nothing. Um, yeah, so you'd be surprised at how things can play out. Um, but, um, I would say that I was satisfied with, you know, I had a nice outcome. Um, it's not me. It doesn't mean I'm going to be living on a, a yacht for the rest of my life, but, uh, but it's good enough that for me it, it it buys me the thing that i value the most which is the freedom to choose where i spend my time and and that that is to me inval- invaluable i mean it's just the most wonderful thing like the, to be able to um, you know pick and choose yeah you know, this is you know i would like to work on this little startup that is going to have a um, positive impact on the world and hopefully save a life every, every week or every month and, and measure it. And that's how I want to spend it. And I want to put this much time into it and, and not be under it. But if it doesn't succeed, it's not going to bankrupt me. Um, you know, be, to be able to, um, tackle things that in that way is an incredible luxury. And I have appreci- appreciation for that luxury, um, having not been there for so long. Um, so I would say, you know, that's something I'm very thankful for as an outcome as well
0: and i think there's a lesson such an important lesson there if if you're doing what you love every day and you've got the freedom to do that you're you're successful that's that's kind of what i take from that that's how i feel too so um you know you don't have to necessarily have hundreds of millions in the bank i mean i know plenty of people have got hundreds of millions in the bank and they're not happy <laughs> but you've got you've got that freedom to do what what you love so but what, uh, circling back why 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 guard how did guard happen in your mind what, what was what, what why are you now um putting your your that that, that love that obsession of, of of doing things in into this
1: yeah and it's not the only one and by the way there's, you know I, I like to think of it as sort of split I have different projects that I'm interested in that that's one. And then I'm doing this sort of professional speaking thing I mentioned, um, which is I enjoy kind of inspiring audiences and it's a way to, means of making a living. Um, and then, um, and then I have some other, sort of ideas of things I'd like to spend some time on. So uh, I think the ADHD side of me and the the entrepreneur in me likes to be involved in several things at the same time. Um, But Guard, as I said, it it kind of met those ingredients of what I was looking for for a startup that I went through earlier with you um, and being impact-driven, saving lives, disruptive, um, cutting-edge technology that happens to be computer vision, artificial intelligence, small business that doesn't have, you know, lots of big... uh, Goals tied to it with all kinds of pressure. You know, we must raise this much money and exit for a billion dollars. Otherwise, it's all over kind of thing. Um, so it had all those ingredients and it just and because of those ingredient, ingredients, it resonated with me and and I feel passionate about it. I love the idea of building an amazing product experience that can save a life. Um, and um, it can be really meaningful to people. Um, it, I the, Fortunately, I don't know anyone who's drowned, um, but I have grown up around water a, a lot of my life, um, from swim team in my school years to being a surfer in the waves um, in my high school years to um, and then having a son who uh, would spend uh, a lot of time around pools and at his mom's pool and so on um, and realizing, oh, wow, as you said, with your four year old, it's like a, I think of a pool as like an as like a bottomless, fiery pit um, from the perspective of the wrong person, um, which is the, you know someone that doesn't swim adequately. Um, and um, and uh, and and it's a real risk. Um, and it's uh, it's uh, drowning is not. Doesn't happen in the way it does is portrayed in movies, where someone's like splashing their arms and screaming for help. Um, And it's it's actually a silent experience where they the person goes under the water, and so people you could be only um, a few yards away and not realize it's happening. Um, And um, so I I think uh, it just seems like it's something that we should have, and and a lot of the best computer vision and technology uh, that's you know a lot of the companies that are employing these new artificial intelligence and computer vision understandably go for the biggest markets. Um, and, um, and most of the markets are going after whether it's facial recognition for Facebook, social networking, or, um, or, or self-driving cars. uh, it's, there are huge markets and they're less likely to go spend those very limited resources on something as small as this. So, um, yeah, so that's how I chose it. And, uh, and uh, it sort of resonates with me, myself and my passions.
0: Really, Chris, I, I admire you so much. I, I think what you're talking about there also, I hope, I hope it inspires people who are listening that it's not necessarily about market size and, and building a billion dollar company. It, it is literally applying what you know and, and, and saving one life, you know, and that's a legacy. I think you're building a legacy with, with your speaking Uh, and teaching and learning as you are doing here today giving your time to share with people who are listening along with something like guard it's it's really admirable and and amazing that you're doing that i've got one last question as we wrap up the podcast one last question i i I want to ask you in 2000 when you started shazam how old were you let's see
1: i was basically i I was in my when i late 20s when i was starting late 20s okay
0: so so if you went back to yourself at the beginning of Shazam and you were to give one bit of advice what would it be now reflecting
1: I guess you know and I've said this I think when I've been asked this question before it's a realization of better realization of how important early revenues are um as as an entrepreneur because, because I like to say uh, I have one slide I created in one of my presentations that I use when I talk to entrepreneurs is, is um, it, it shows a, a scuba divers under the ocean with their tanks. And, you, and you, as soon as you look at those pictures, they're beautiful, right? They're under the water looking at the coral reefs and the fish. But in that tank is like an hour's worth of oxygen, you know, and, um, and that's very comparable to what the situation is like for an entrepreneur with funding. Uh, you literally have that hour worth of oxygen on your back. And when it, when that runs out, that's it, you, you know, it's, you're out, it's not like there's just other tanks of oxygen just freely available to attach, um, to, the, to your back. Um, so I think of, um, I think of revenue as being like the oxygen. It's like the, it's like those spare tanks, um, and, um, because when you have revenue that is like funding, it's, it's paying the bills. Um, and, and, and it's what keeps you alive. So that, because what, if this one certainty, um, in life is that things take longer than you expect, you know, ask anyone that's remodeled a house, um, or built a business, you know, it's just always ends up taking longer than you expect. You hit, you hit different, uh, hurdles. You didn't expect unknown out things that happen, um, whatever it is. And, uh, and so you just need the, you need that extra runway, a lot of extra runway in some cases. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and so, you, unless things are if you're, things are going gangbusters, then sure, money will be th- be thrown at you by investors. But it's not always the case that things are going gangbusters. And so that's why that early revenue is like the oxygen. So how do you address that? How would I have addressed it? Is um, is just putting a higher uh, priority on, on on building out what it takes to get that early revenue. Um, and in the case of Shazam, it was um, it ended up being we built a. Uh, a B2B offering where we monitored thousands of radio stations for companies that needed thousands of radio stations to be monitored. It had absolutely nothing to do with my vision, my grand vision of as a consumer app to identify songs, but it did um, leverage the technology that we had built of music recognition. Um, It required a huge diversion of resources away from what we were focused on, but it was but it did bring in early revenue and it actually did help save the company. It actually helped keep the company alive in the six-year period I mentioned of survival, but we didn't do it early enough. We should have done it even earlier. And that would have been my biggest advice is, is make it a higher priority from day one out of the gate um, for the business. So because And if I had realized how important it was to get that early revenue, even if it meant delaying my main vision a little bit by six months or a year or a year and a half, um, I think that that would have been a better route to have taken. Um, and, you know, people often don't realize how successful this route can be. I mean, one example I give is that Google, in its early days, what, what allowed Google to survive in those early days? It was They were getting one big check each year, and it was from Yahoo, because Google was running search for Yahoo. And that's what, that's what Google's early revenue was. Um, and then that, that helped pay the bills as it built Google.com that later became its own business. Um, And the primary business, obviously. Um, So, uh, you know, there there are other examples of people doing that. But as I said, like, you know, when you're even when you're the Google, you don't think your number one priority is to build a search capability for Yahoo. But it is if it brings in some revenue. Um, So anyway, that that would be the thing I think that um, because the reason it's such an important piece of advice is that entrepreneurs tend to want to build what their vision is. You know, you, whatever your grand vision is, that's what you want to focus on. Uh, And that means not doing this, some of these things that might bring in the early revenue. Um, And so that's where you have to remind yourself, yes, but the early revenue becomes, if it's, you know, repetitive, repeating revenue becomes the, the oxygen that keeps you alive while you can actually pursue your, your core vision and dream. Such
0: good advice. I built nineteen companies, and a lot of them failed because I didn't hear this advice when I was younger. And and actually, I had the wrong investors in one business who told me going after revenue that wasn't core to the main business was a distraction and a mistake. Mm-hmm. And that was a mistake to listen to those investors yeah. because what you're talking about, we went and got revenue. We wouldn't have needed more investors. We wouldn't have needed. More oxygen, we would have had our own oxygen tanks, and so it's such good advice for people listening. You know, it, it's—I um, was like the Airbnb story, of how they sold Obama reels, right? I mean, they—they they created little revenue streams here and there to to pay for the website that wasn't making any money yet to survive. And so it's so crucial. And by the way, it's probably another application for Guard if you can scan those companies that don't realize they're about to run out of oxygen. <laughs> In the water they're in, that would be a pretty, that would be a pretty valuable business. Um, but anyway, absolute pleasure talking to you, Chris. I, uh, I Again, I'm going to say it one more time. Um, I'm in awe of, of, of your uh, insights, story, history, what you're working on now. And um, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for, 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 for sharing so much today. And um, I personally really enjoyed it. I'm sure my audience have done too. And you can follow Chris in the notes below. Um, you can go listen to his past keynote speeches. You can follow him on guard and watch what he's about to do there. And Chris, thank you so much again for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Simon.
0: I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit purposefulproject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free.